I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. I am not a startup expert. When Sophie Thien's book hit my radar, I was intrigued. Sophie's book is The Soul of Startups. She says there is a misconception that accompanies people make its culture. Well, not so fast. Culture starts at the top and works its way downward and is consistently changing according to Sophie. And that can lead to some unintended consequences, as we'll learn about in this conversation. Sophie Thien, The Soul of Startups, that's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. Like you, lifelong learner, serving in a business or financial leadership position, I've not spent much time with startups, just a few over the past 20 years. So there is definitely a knowledge gap. Sophie Thien is an expert at developing and shaping cultures in startups. And her book is full of big ideas stemming from dozens and dozens of interviews of those working in these organizations. And in this conversation, we're going to hear, contrary to the research at Gallup, People truly do leave companies, not just bad bosses or bad managers. We'll have some advice from Sophie for anyone thinking about a job in a startup. And the Pygmalion effect that's alive and well in nearly all startups. My first impression of this book, it has three audiences. And Sophie agreed. Absolutely. You can see me nodding now. Absolutely. That's definitely the reason why the book has actually came to life. Also, also making sure that you, you notice in the book as well that none of the interviewers that I've interviewed actually are founders. So it was really, really important for me to also use this book as a platform for the people who have been operators and inspiring or aspiring to come into the startups to actually get a really good sense of what it means to be operating in the system. You have an interesting origin story, but maybe let me back up because the two kind of go hand in hand. This whole concept of the startup paradox, very early in the book, and you may have said this in the, the forward, you talked about uh, wanting to be have a job where you're confident, valued, and feel fulfilled. And I think that's the way a lot of people are when they go to work for a startup doesn't always happen that way. Why is that? Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's very, very rewarding. I would say, you know, just reflecting on my whole career, the most rewarding moments have definitely come from operating in a startup, but it's also very difficult to actually go through the cycle of pressure the pace, the pace is not for everybody. But at the same time, I think it also takes a certain type of people to be able to kind of navigate themselves through it, be it, you know, having a strong mental um, mental health or mental well-being, because at the end of the day, you're really coming down to the crunch of playing with your emotions sometimes. I was going to say one of the stories I vividly remember, uh, you're in this new position and I think it's maybe seven o'clock in the evening and you get up and you notice people are still there. It's like, do I stay? Do I go? I guess I go. And then a few people went ahead and put their coats on and left. Okay, she's leaving. I guess we'll leave. But uh, your reception the next day from the CEO was 
interesting, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was. It kind of set the tone of expectation from day one already. Your origin story, and I want to. I want to make sure we hit this first. It's. It's. I. I, I don't want to gloss over it, but you start out in the automotive industry engineering background. Is that correct? And I, I, I find that fascinating. So how did you go from there to where you are today? I went, um, I was very lucky to be perfectly honest. I also wrote this down in the book. I got my first hit of what it means to be working in a startup, basically a very small company. It's also a recruitment company and they were looking for engineers and they were hiring for automotive engineers specifically. And I was also kind of placed in a uh, position to look after a graduate engineer. So it just kind of made sense, right? At the end of the day, I was an early graduate engineer. It kind of felt like I was looking for my friends to fit into these roles. One thing led to another, have absolutely loved recruitment, opened up my network. And the more I worked so closely with people, it just kind of fell into the right thing where I went into a startup, started looking at people, hiring, building out teams, working with leadership teams, and then eventually also have a much thorough understanding around how to build great companies. And that comes from the culture. And that's why I call it the soul of startups. You, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. I want to talk a little bit about culture. I mean, cu- I mean, culture, that's one of the key themes uh, in this book. Um, I think a lot of readers, so a lot of our audience, I mean, lifelong learners, many of them, I would suppose, have listened to or read Patty McCord's book, Powerful. Uh, there, in fact, we just interviewed one author today. One of his favorite books is The Culture Code by uh, Daniel Coyle. What would you say is one of the biggest issues that founders have when they start their companies when it comes to culture? That's a broad question, but because you have so many interviews in this book, I feel this is a very honest presentation of more of what's going wrong as to what's going on right. What would you say the biggest issue that you feel like founders face when it comes to culture? And I'm I'm keeping it pretty open-ended. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great question. I think the biggest challenge for, for founders as they're building out the companies is they sometimes forget to recognize that as they are evolving, the company is also evolving. So therefore, the culture itself will evolve. And I think when when you stop to recognize that this is an ongoing movement, right? There is constantly going to be work that needs to be done, be it you're great at this very point when you're 50 people, when you're 100 people, the ways of working and your behaviors or your habits are probably going to change as well for it to be a sustainable business. So as soon as founders realize that the work stops there and there's no more work to be done, that's where they come up with the biggest challenge. And I think most of the startups that you would see out in the market struggle with this perception because they never really understood that the reality is there is work to continue to do. I may be putting words in your mouth or words in the pages, but one of the one of the concepts that came to mind was the Pygmalion effect, where maybe some of these founders are trying to recreate basically themselves. Could that also be an issue as well? For sure. There is a whole chapter that was dedicated to this whole um, scenario. Um, that there's definitely it, right? At the end of the day, 
when a startup is being born, a founder does treat it like their little baby. It's, it's, it's their pride and joy. So it's really, really important for them to recognize that they're putting all their effort in. So naturally it becomes this behavior where they are trying to replicate themselves. And if it's almost like if I can build an army that makes that breathe and lives exactly like I am and share the same tone, then it makes it so much easier for us to operate. It's exactly the same as when you go out and look for good friends or your best friends are probably going to kind of sound like you because you share a lot of um, common interests or if not passion. So I think in a lot of ways, we look at it as a shortcut to create great businesses because it's a faster way to do that, especially coming into conclusion that, you know, a startup runs on a fast pace. But as soon as we kind of hit a, hit a plateau stage where with, without diversity in your teams or in the people, then things kind of need it to be tinkle out. Diversity is a really good word. And that's a segue into my next question. You're going to be interviewed a lot over the next few months. And I don't know if this is going to be picked up on, but it, I couldn't help but zeroing in on it, taking some notes, highlighting in my Kindle version, but the the section on the, the Enneagram uh, you talked specifically about the ones, the threes, the fives, and the eights. But going back to that Pygmalion effect, some of these high type A people, and I think we can envision in our mind who those type A's are, but even in the, some of the startups that you work for, is that something that you've noticed that they tend to be molded in the same image as that founder? For for sure, for sure. So looking at the Enneagram, you do have a couple of um, personality traits that kind of come together that make you collectively as a person. And it wouldn't just fall into the ones only or the threes only or the fives only, but you would have noticed definitely that you've poked out the one, three, five, eight, tend to grouped themselves together because they're very complementary with each other. For example, the eights are, you know, can be seen as very aggressive, but in a lot of ways in those situations, they are seen as assertive. So therefore they can get the ball rolling when other people can't. So there's definitely the benefit and obviously the disadvantage of having a very, very similar uh, like-minded people in a group, especially in a startup. But dare I say also, most of the startups, including the people I've interviewed, have given me enough evidence to say that most of the time they're exactly the same kind of people because it is the thing that works for them. So it's very difficult to deviate or if not challenge yourself on top of all the things that you're trying to do as a founder, challenge yourself to kind of break this cycle when it already works. Use the word I like, deviate. This is going to be the $64,000 question for a lot of HR leaders. How do you start to deviate from some of those personality types? Is I'm not going to, I, I mean, you've worked as an HR leader in several startups. You've consulted, you've mentored. I know it's not easy, but is, is there a how that you can help make it easier uh, for some of us? Yeah, for sure. I think lear learning from my mistakes and obviously learning from whatever success that I've had going through some of these consulting, especially in these coaching um, times, is that it really is a way, it really does come down to the way you package the narrative. Now, what I'm trying to say is it's totally okay if you just wanted the one, three, five, eights in a company to make it uber successful. 
However, when you implement some twos, some six, some fours, and different kinds in in your community or in the company itself, it really comes down to how you package the narrative. Now, what if I tell you that you need a two in your team because all of you are actually quite dysfunctional in your communication, but having a two is actually going to balance you out. And at the same time, there might be data that can prove that this team will be incredibly efficient, far more than they believe that they can, rather rather than just being ambitious um, individuals. So I think it's really important, especially coming down to a HR role, is as a HR leader, it's so important for us to be able to go, right, you need some diversity here, but here's the why, not just because... I think you're lacking some color here or lacking some numbers here. Let me, let me kind of dilute it a little bit. When you use the word dilute, it's associated with something quite negative. But when you go, I'm going to make you a lot more efficient and I'm actually going to help try and make you even more successful than you are right now. So therefore, ambitious individuals will immediately get drawn to it because it becomes the one thing that can make them better. The size of the people's team uh, controls the focus of the team and affecting the final output of what their employees will get right. So even even in certain teams, you've got icy culture within a bigger culture. As teams get bigger, that's going to impact the, the culture as well. For sure. Absolutely. Because subcultures, again, it goes back to it goes back to what we were saying earlier is the biggest challenge in a company is when they fail to recognize that the culture is going to evolve as the time goes by. And so therefore you're allowing you're allowing subcultures to organically get built within teams itself because your manager may be brought in as the first base of you know early employees that behave a certain way. And then eventually they will grow out their team and they will behave slightly different. All, all in all, as, as long as collectively they're working towards the same mission in the company, when it all fails apart, it's usually down to the fact that all these subcultures are not really complementary with each other. And so therefore this dysfunctional relationship or dysfunctional communication uh, dynamic just gets broken down into each and every team. One of the things I do with books is is I come across terms I'm not familiar with. I'll either take note of them, uh, put them in my Evernote, store them. You had a term that came up and you didn't really get into it because probably some of your readers are gonna they're gonna know exactly what this is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be transparent, no pun intended. Now you know what I'm gonna ask maybe about. Uh, I will share my ignorance. But what do you mean by a transparent culture? And I apologize if that's such an elementary question, but I just have to ask. Yeah, for sure. So a transparent culture is usually described when the behaviors, again, culture is all about behaviors. It's when you see employees, especially leadership, when they're very willing to share information about the company, the status of the company. As we all know, a startup sometimes can be quite uncertain, which is also kind of the main reason of giving you the thrill of working in the job that you're working in. That's why it's so rewarding when things work well, but it's also really deflating when 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 things don't go so well. So in terms of a transparent culture, this is where people are very willing to give up information for each other for the greater good. Each chapter addresses a type of a founder. I mean, there's the trailblazer, there's the community builder, there's the keen learner. So I'm just going to focus. We can't hit all of them. So if it's okay, I just want to hit a few. You do bring up, you do bring up burnout. 
at one, a couple of points in the book. And it also comes out in some of the interviews that you do with some of the, the people inside the book. One thing that I was reminded of is that this is not just a personal issue. It's a company issue. And again, I completely get it. We interviewed Jimmy Sony a few months ago. He wrote about the PayPal mafia. And you and I can imagine the number of hours, you know, people aren't even going to bed, putting people sleeping bags under their desks, not even leaving the, the office. But burnout has to be something that has to be difficult, especially for people like you. I mean, how do you balance burnout with a founding team that's trying to get a product? I, I don't even, ha- I mean, I can't even ask the right question because it's such a critical <laughs> issue, but how, how do we address this in the workplace? Yeah, but burnout is a real issue. It's also an emotionally taxing issue that we all need to curb. And you're absolutely right. You will often see burnout when a founding team or a product team or an engineering team, mostly um, when they're trying to get a product out the door in a faster pace than they are expected to. But your very question here is how do we curb that is by creating a balance within the workplace. And how we can do that is let's just say we've got something out the door already. Can I now take a breather? And as leadership in the company, if we don't recognize that people are human and they also need to take breathing spaces, and if we don't encourage or allow that, we create this cycle of burnout. And that's very, very important to avoid in a company, especially nowadays. We're talking about creating not just great and successful companies that make tons of profits. It's talking about creating a sustainable company that can withstand, for example, the current economic market conditions. What else can withstand a company if not both people and their product? And this is why it's so important for us to make sure that we're balancing that out. You have, I believe it's chapter seven, you talk about collectivists and individualists. I don't know why Sophie is one of my favorite chapters in the book. Uh, the collectivists, you would almost get the idea that's 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 the better term. The individualists, maybe not. Before I ask my question, I'm going to let you give just a brief definition. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, sure. So in the book, in the context of the book, the collectivists are basically a group of people who will democratize every decision and they would love to work together in a team. However, no one in the room would stand up to take ownership to make a decision solely for, for then the team to follow. On the other hand, an individualist or people who can collectively come together, however, will have a very strong mind and decision that they want to make for the company. So therefore, it can turn very quickly dysfunctional, but at the same time, based on some of my interviewers and research as well, has been very helpful for some of the companies who are moving at a much faster pace than the market have expected them to be. Is it possible to be a little bit of both? Uh, Now, my bias is that some of the well-known unicorns out there probably have an individualist type mentality uh, at the helm 
but can you have someone that's a blend of both where they also are embracing that transparent culture we talked about earlier? Absolutely. And this is why we call them the community builders, for example. And that's the follow-up of that chapter. Exactly. When you are, yes. So so it's so important for you to, again, you know, strike that balance. We talk about diversity, we talk about balance, but at the end of the day, it's just multiplying not just yourself, but other types of traits as well. That's why it's so real in startups where when you are able to draw a fine balance and have, um, and have diversity, it's, you create leadership that can actually complement each other. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a community builder in the context of the book is used to describe someone who's an individualist, but then they can bring a collective of individualists to work together, but then still give them space and autonomy to be successful as an individual person. I want to applaud you for something that you included in the book. I think, I don't know anyone who's not familiar with the the Gallup organization and one of the big quotes of why people leave organizations. It's usually they don't leave a job, they leave, it's, it's something people related, a supervisor, a manager. But you said something, and it came out in your research, interviewing all these people. You learned that people, well, wait a minute, they do leave companies. In fact, it's usually the managers they like, It's but the managers can no longer insulate them from these bigger cultural issues. Again, I just want to applaud that. And isn't that true really universally? It is. It is. It is definitely true because I think, has it been a shortcut for us to blame the managers because they have such a direct relationship with them? And so therefore, it's so much easier to get that data, right? But, you know, in, in that particular chapter, I, at the start of it, I personally drew from my own very experience where I have lost someone who is an absolute asset in my team. But according to her, she is leaving because of the company culture and that has got nothing to do with me. But as a manager myself, through that experience, I've learned to take up that responsibility to also call out the bad behaviors as also part of the leadership team. So I do strongly believe that there, there while there is a correlation that people will leave because of managers, but it's not always, definitely not 100% of the time. Here in the United States, and, and I know probably in your space, Sophie, the HR world can be a small community, but in the States, it's almost like we have three types of HR people. We got the very compliance centric. We also have the recruiting centric. And then we have the people that I never get to encounter. Uh, I I think you're the exception. I don't get to find them but it's the culture-centric HR people. So this founder, again, I'm, I'm picking on him because he's the one that brought it up, the, this founder of Unleash. I think he gets it, but the question is, how do you become that new HR person that's not necessarily compliance-centric? And by the way, compliance has to be done. I mean, we're, we're not saying ignore. Absolutely. You got. I mean, you have to have it. Uh, someone has to recruit. And I would contend, and I think you'll agree that recruiters are a special breed. They're great salespeople and they know, but on this culture thing, I think in my opinion, someone who's very analytical, number centric, I would think what you're doing is really, really hard. 
is there a is there a textbook? Is there a school? Is there a community to teach people like you that has figured out this people thing, this culture thing? No, but definitely I I pay a lot of tribute to the community that I actually am part of and also come out of. I think I think you're absolutely right to say that there's no HR folks in the room that will completely ignore compliance or the black and white structure that we need to absolutely adhere to. I think that's what makes the hard skill difficult in our job. Whereas a lot of the culture pieces, yes, the data analytics is really important because you wanted the data or you needed the data to make your case seen. However, you know, it's the soft skill that really comes to shine when you work in culture. It's almost like for every step of the journey that I take, I need to take a step back and ask myself, is this good enough for the people that I'm serving? Is this good enough for, you know, Abigail that I'm serving? Is this good enough for Mary that I'm serving? So I think it's really important for HR folks to not think that this is something that is unachievable or there's a textbook to go behind it to make you better in this, especially, you know, it's it's a much more rewarding space that they're seeing now working in culture, but it's really just implementing these habits into the day-to-day that we currently already perform. So I think, you know, if if we can if we can take out that misperception, it's a much more enjoyable role for HR folks because hopefully then they won't see it as just a black and white role. I want to ask you just a couple of lightning round questions. And it's basically the same question, but for three different audiences. And, uh, and I hope this will make sense, but I mean, you've, you work in a mentoring, you've mentored people, you've coached people, you've helped people Um, in that, in that context you've got a startup founder who has come to you. He, she, uh, pick, pick, it can be FinTech. Uh, obviously you know that space uh, very well. They've come to you, they have 30 people and they've never even thought about the whole culture discussion. They've never thought about culture. What's going to be one of the first pieces of advice. Now you can't say read the book, but what's going to be one of the first pieces of advice you're, and, and you kind of hinted about that at the very outset, but well, what's one of the first things you're going to you're share with them? Yes. For a founder, I would firstly ask a question, whether they think their people are happy. And if they do say yes, I would then follow up with, why do you think so? Explain. It's very, very easy to think that people are enjoying their work in the company if you don't hear about the problems. So that would be the first advice that I would tell founders. I so Sophie, try not to laugh at this, but you got the answer right. No, the the reason I the reason I'm saying that is because what I learned from you is that the culture is continually changing as well as we go from ten people to twenty people, and uh, but again that again great feedback. Same question, Sophie, this time for an HR leader. Now we kind of hit that as we were talking about this unleash. Uh, founders uh, comment, but what what forewarning would you give to an HR leader? Let's say they come to you and say, Sophie, I've got this great job. looks very promising for a startup. Uh, it looks like they're going to hit a home run. What forewarning would you give them as they step into that new position? For, for a HR folk, I would be very honest and ask them, do you have the mental capacity to take this on? Yes. Because it is very emotionally taxing. And with the hard skills, 
And with the work, especially if you've been operating as a HR person for a long time, you know how to do this job at the back, at the back of your hand. You will know this. It's more important to ask whether or not you have the mental capacity to take this on. And I want, based on some of the early chapters, you're speaking from experience. Uh, there are a couple of those positions, I'm assuming, again, reading between the lines, it was not easy after you left them, was it? For sure. It's it's not easy. It's, you know, it's it's far easier, I would say, in my career to leave a legacy behind than to actually pick up a legacy. Uh, so the last, the last audience, and this would, by the way, would be a great TED talk. Uh, do they have, do they have TEDx talks where you are, uh, in, in the yeah. UK? I think an interesting TEDx talk would be asking the question, are you sure you want to work at a startup? Here are the three <laughs> things you need to consider. So same question. Let's say you are doing that TEDx talk. What are maybe the three things? And and by the way, you have tons of interviews, so you have you have a lot of raw material to pick from. But what might be the top three things you you want these young people to to know as they're starting to bark? And and these are the yeah. same people who are saying, "Now I'm going to get a lot of free meals out of this." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's hope. Um, first question: Is this exactly what you want? Number two. Do you actually understand what a startup is from a setting, connection, and environment perspective? And then number number three, final very important question: Please do your research and make sure you've got every you've crossed all the uh, all the T's and dot all the I's before you say yes to the job. There is absolutely unsurmountable information out there about each and every startup. You shouldn't take the shortcut. I haven't, as I got finished with the book, and again, be, because I get to talk to a lot of authors, I have all these ideas swimming my head. We just interviewed uh, an individual named Greg Alexander. As of this recording, the show uh, has ju- it dropped as of this past weekend. Uh, Greg has written a book called The Boutique. It's about professional services firms. Uh, how to build, grow, and then exit a professional services firm. He he owns this organization called I think it's called Collective Fifty Four. So it's a it's a membership area just for professional services firms. I didn't see this in the back of the book. So here's my idea. So if you say Mark, we've already we already have something like this in place. I apologize, but have you thought about creating? Going back to some of your one of the chapters, chapter eight, I believe, mm. having a community, and it would have one of three buckets or one of three areas. It could be one community, well, actually three communities, but one organization, one for the founders who are looking to really get this culture thing right, one for people like you who are in the people space for the first time HR for first time in in startups. And then also people who are working uh, that addresses the mental health, the, the burnout issues. Have you thought about a community like that for startups? For, for sure. I think I've been thinking about this for a long time. And that's also part of the origin of why the book has, you know, has, has come about. I come, from a, I come from a lot of communities and, and I treasure and value my communities a lot. So it kind of feels like the community is already out there. I would hope with the book, to continue the conversation so it doesn't stop. 
one of my favorite questions is this is CFO bookshelf. So, and every person we have on is an author. So one of my favorite questions, I like to be nosy. Uh, I guess I should ask, are you a reader? And then if you are, what are some of your favorite books? Um, one of my, to be honest, one of my very, very favorite books that I frequently visit most of the time in my career is The Tao of Pooh. I know, I know it's not the business book that everybody expects me to say, but for me, it treats, I treat it as a mind check, especially because of the cycle that I go through and the, the role that I do and the nature of the job as well. So it was very, very important for me to kind of keep myself in check while I serve the others. So for me, this book has given me a lot of direction. And most of the time, it's just really kind of refreshing what an empty mind means. And also to be absolutely calm and collective and to know that this is not the end of the world. So anybody who's worked with me before would often hear me say, we're not saving lives here. We've got tomorrow. And I think that's a very, very important book for me. Again, the book is The Soul of Startups. I, this is a two big thumbs up. I really like it. And I think anyone, anyone affiliated with startups, the, the, this book is worthy of being read. And and again, it's such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Sophie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. The Tao of Pooh, I looked it up, nearly 2,500 reviews, a 4.7 composite rating. Maybe we need to check that out. So based on interviews with those working in startups, people truly do leave companies, not because of bad managers. What do you think of that? Her name is Sophie Thien. Her book is The Soul of Startups. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. <laughs>